0: Welcome to our multi sport podcasts for triathletes, duathletes, sportive riders, road racers, time trialists, runners, mountain bikers, and fitness enthusiasts. Now in its 14th year of publishing. Whatever your distance and whatever your event, this podcast aims to make you smarter and faster. We are supported by No Pins, suppliers of Club custom and aero cycling apparel, visit nopins.com. Also supported by southfortracing.co.uk for all your biking needs, whether mountain bike, triathlon, sportif, gravel, time trial, cyclocross, or e-bike. Visit southfortracing.co.uk. And also supported by 4th Edge, blood profiling to test Track and optimize your diet, training, and recovery. Visit fourthedge.co.uk. Welcome to this one hundred and sixty-seventh episode, a special podcast of the training and nutrition presentation from the 220 triathlon stage at the recent London triathlon show held at the Excel Centre London UK. Thank you for coming on a Sunday morning the point of the talk is really to put some things across to you to get you to think about training and nutrition and to actually think that they are not two different things they're actually things that combine together so the things to actually take away hopefully and you don't have to write notes or try and remember it all, it will be either if you're on Facebook, it will be on Facebook which is uh, Coach Joe Beer, if you search that or on Twitter at Coach Joe Beer the point of putting the information out to you is to try and just change some of your habits, most people train, most people eat, most people even compete within certain parameters that probably need to be sometimes livened up a bit so how have I learned all the things that at this point mean that I keep a roof over my head how do I do it firstly you have to have connections in the industry you have to coach athletes you have to test things you have to be in partly an innovator so that you know that as things improve within products nutrition that actually you are on the same Mindset is the way that nutrition and training is going. Things are moving forwards. There's certain things that, that uh, 10 years ago weren't available. We didn't have as many aero bikes. We didn't have as many products nutritionally. We didn't have as many options for tires, wetsuits, you name it. So in learning, it's a lot about trying to absorb all the information that you could possibly get hold of, but I can guarantee it would confuse you. There is so much information now, you need to effectively cut to the important bits and not get bamboozled by all the information that is out there. So, jump past that, and that, and that, and get to this bit, training. So, the most effective training sessions for endurance athletes, if you're doing anything from a sprint triathlon up to Ironman, anything from a short-distance cycle race to a three-day London to Paris ride. The most important training, and I cannot reiterate this enough, the most important training is for you to be in what is called Zone 1, but if you're using something like Garmin, you'll be used to calling it Zone 1 and 2. It's effectively from 55 to 80% of your maximum heart rate. Okay? This, is, this is easy. This is not requiring hard effort. Okay? And this is where some people switch off they think the only way to get better is tomorrow morning if they're getting up for a run or they're going for a bike tomorrow morning they've got to push it they've got to go faster than they did the day before go faster than they did the week before it doesn't work like that okay there's no way you can push every session here is a graph it represents the training volume of the most successful cross-country female skier. Cross-country skiing is an aerobic sport, it's no different to to running, to triathlon, to cycling. The green component in this graph, okay, you can all see green, you don't need to know numbers, but that green component is the amount of zone one training that that athlete was doing per year. Okay, doing something from 500 hours per year up to close on 1,000 hours per year, is how much a professional athlete will build. But the important thing is, over that entire time, 92% of her training was in zone one, okay? 92%, so the majority of the time, that athlete was taking it easy. And this is, this is the missed part of training for a lot of people. They think, no, 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 I haven't got a lot of time, I'm on a mission, I've gotta get faster, I'm gonna push every session. It's physiologically impossible. You can push, but you will not force your body to get better. So instead, and this is a great model, instead, you just practice your technique. You think about your swimming, your biking, your running, and you just cruise. You do not try to force too many quality sessions. You certainly don't say, well, I'm not doing... 20 hours, 25 hours a week I'm only doing 6 so well I've got to do speed work haven't I because I haven't got enough time and it's like it doesn't work like that Okay, the most important part of endurance sports is uh, take an example we do in training camps we tape over people's mouths with the lastoplast, tape their mouth over and get them to, to run around a track and show them this is how aerobically fast you can run Okay? The ones that have to start peeling off a side and breathe through the side of their mouth to get extra oxygen in, they basically they can't put up with the fact that other people are running away from them. And, no, 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 I'm as fast as she is, I've got to keep up. So they start breathing through their mouth and not just breathing through their nose. Your nose has hairs in it for a good reason. It's an air filter. It filters the air as it goes in. There are too many athletes, so when they're training, it's, <sighs> it's breathing through the mouth, which is straight away a stress response. This athlete, the most successful cross-country ski athlete, I think 10 gold medals at Olympics, so pretty good at what they do. Most of the time, that person, you could have elastoplasted her mouth over, and she could have carried on training quite happily. 92% of that person's career. Okay? So, the number one thing is do not push your training too hard. There is no way that your so called motivation is going to push through this physiological barrier. And if I go back one, that's across loads of different sports. From, you probably can't see all the uh, writing, but from things like cycling, cross country skiing, rowing, uh, there's, uh, yeah, it's mostly uh, rowing, cycling that percentage is at least even in preparation and pre-competition it's at least 70% and in many cases going up as high as 90% okay there is no endurance sport where people say no no no, no I, haven't, I haven't got time for, for for going out and taking it steady I've got to push every session because I've got to get quick I've got to do my speed work and often it shows that there's a total lack of understanding about what you're trying to do because the the common fault I see with people's training diaries is there's too many sessions where they go out to do perhaps a steady one-hour run but they see somebody or they join somebody or they just suddenly have a eureka moment that this isn't quick enough I need to run faster and so what should be a steady session becomes a harder session that's not training to a plan that's training to your ego oh I see certain setters up there I'll try and catch them up or somebody's just gone by me on the bike. They can't do that. I'm faster than they are. I'll ride with them and start going too hard. It is the biggest problem. It's the biggest problem because people can't say, no, no, my zone one is my zone one. What anyone else can do, that's their ability. And we do an exercise on training camps. So we get people to run around four and a bit times, make sure it's a mile, which is 1,609 meters. So we get the extra nine meters as well. And they have to close their mouth, and sometimes we'll actually tape their mouth over. Right, you're going to run round, and this will be the maximum aerobic pace that you can run at. And then we line them up, and you have some people over this side that are maybe five, five and a quarter, five and a half minute miling, and then nose breathing, right the way down to people doing 11, 12 minute miling. Then you go down the list of people and you ask them what their 10k PB is. It's no surprise these people here are somewhere around 32 minutes. These people up here, it might be 55 to 60 minutes. So they can either do a time trial to find out who's quickest or they can just nose breathe a mile and we can put that person in the right part of that group. Whoever can train aerobically quicker, funnily enough, they can actually race quicker. But what you can't do is say, no, 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 I'm different. I've got to do more speed work than other people. All of these endurance sports, all of the data shows that isn't possible. You actually just have to concentrate on your technique, enjoy your training. And I know that's a, that's a swear word, enjoyment. What, what? You enjoy training and you get better. No, 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 no. I've got to push it. I've got, to, I've, I've got a mission. I've got to go faster. It doesn't work like that. And... It's a shame, really, because when people invest the right amount of time in their training, if you enjoy it, if you find you don't get as injured, you don't get as tired, but you're actually getting quicker, it's brilliant. There is no loss. It's a win-win-win. The only loss is a loss to your ego. And that's actually admitting that there are some faster people. I'm not going to get as quick as they are just by hanging on to their back wheel or clinging on to their feet in the swimming pool. And there was a good couple of um, quotes recently that that people sent me. These are just, uh, the top one is actually, that was somebody wrote in their training diary. I was chuffed with this. I used the same route as last February, and I'm one minute 50 faster than the previous attempt, but for the same heart rate. Nothing more really to say. That person's just running their normal training loop. Without trying, they're now quicker. That's how to be fitter. It's not, you know what, I went out again and I've pushed it as hard as possible, I've just taken 20 seconds off that loop. It's the 56th time I've done it and I've just managed to get another 20 seconds off. That isn't getting fitter, that's actually racing. And then we get um, the second person down. I'm really starting to thrive on zone one. I'm now running faster in zone one than my old training runs last year were in the top of zone two. The level is so much lower, it makes the running more enjoyable. There's that word again, enjoyment. I mean, people think that is not part of training. It is absolutely part of your training. And then the bottom one, um, did half marathon, accidentally PB'd. Who likes to accidentally PB? Okay? Had a very good winter training block, felt very fit, didn't go off too fast, and went, there we go, that's a PB. Okay? Because they are aerobically fitter. Okay? No high-intensible track sessions for 10 weeks to try and get that little bit quicker, all about aerobic training. And if there's you know, anything that you see that's a, a, a nutritional supplement, a wetsuit, a great bike, it's all just fluff if you don't get the magic part of endurance training which is you have to cruise it. There is no serious effort involved for most people. Most people will go out of their zone one because there's hills, there's accidental uh, rushes to get back home or to get to work a bit quicker, and it just means that there's accidental zone two and three anyway. You don't have to plan how many hard sessions should I do this week. Most people have actually got to plan who am I going to train with and what routes am I going to choose in my sessions and what groups am I going to train with to make sure I do not overexert. Because if you do, you're actually not going anywhere. Most people, the only reason why I make them quicker in the first six months is I slow them down and say, stop working too hard in too many sessions. And it takes a a big amount of confidence for somebody's ego to say, I've just got to slow down. I keep running at way too high a heart rate. I need to slow down. And then there's the eureka moment. It's a text. It's a phone call. I'm getting quicker, but you've you've slowed me down in training. Why why am I getting quicker? Because that's the way it works. Okay? And I know there will be people that absolutely don't believe me. Fine. Go off, write research papers that, you know, I could probably pile them up to here that have shown that this is the way to go. Um, There's not many on this side that are pushing super high intensity intervals. You can be a great endurance athlete on four hours a week. You know, go out, warm up, smash every session, cool down. That science doesn't exist. But many people do that in training. And they'll they'll sometimes say, it was quite a steady session. And we look at the heart rate. And I'm like, you've got to be joking. There's 25 minutes in zone two. There is no way that was a steady session. Yeah, but I kind of felt all right. Yes, but it wasn't steady. So if you want to get better, the number one thing... Is slow yourself down not just for a few weeks of base training like it's some kind of um, short-term Oh, I will slow down for a bit year-round year-round you've got to do at least three-quarters of your week as endurance training there's only a small amount of hard week, um, hard work not get to this point oh it's February oh it's March oh now it's April right speed work forget about the base stuff don't do any long sessions I've just got to do the fast stuff because here comes my sprint triathlon, my half Ironman. Okay, this will be available, as I said earlier, on Facebook at at coachjoebeer.com or on Twitter. Please, please, please read it. What you actually do with your training is divide it up into zone one, zone two, zone three. For most people, I think you just concentrate on the green bit. The example I've got here is not just a steady session. This would be on the bike, what I call overgeared efforts. You work, um, if you haven't got a power meter, you basically just work up an incline at about 60 revs, pushing a big gear. You go up a, a, a hill in a gear you're normally used to going along the flat. okay? You're probably on the big chain ring. You slow everything down to around 60 revs. Your heart rate will not go through the roof because it now becomes a legs exercise, not a lungs exercise. And then you turn around, you spin back down to the bottom and do it again. And this was recently in 220, uh, I think it's David McNamee put his sessions his week and there it was, 60 RPM strength work, I think he was talking about 10 minute blocks. It's not a secret but most people don't do it. If you want to get quicker at hills, you go with your mates and everyone starts hammering up hills as fast as possible, often out of the saddle, that's not the way to get better at hills. You sit your backside on on that saddle, you gear it down to a big gear and you grind up the hill. And bingo, your legs are tired that day, but they feel great one or two days later and you start noticing you can actually push the pedals better. Most of the zone one stuff is just ride your bike. Just ride your bike. Don't overthink it. Think about technique. And I'm a big lover of, uh, of rollers. Who rides rollers indoors? Come on. Brilliant. You get the gold medal. Okay, everyone's got their direct-drive mount system, a Watt bike, all these kind of power-orientated things. Um, yesterday I asked, who can ride um, rollers no-handed and one-hand went up. Can you ride rollers one no-handed? Okay, that's what you've got to work on, okay? Um, the other question after that is, who can ride rollers no-handed and text, okay? Okay, that's bike control. That's proper bike control. Not I can sit there and push 200 watts for 40 minutes and just about finish the session. That that is not bike handling. Bike handling is buy some rollers and get used to doing them. And everyone that fears them finds they can do it, but there is a very slow process. First time out, you've got your running shoes on because you don't want to be clipped in. You just want to get used to it. And then your confidence builds. You go out on the road and you can ride in a straight line. It's amazing. Instead of people doing this because they're not used to balancing, you actually ride in a straight line. And I bet you know somebody that's got some in the attic, in a garage, or that will just give them to you. And that would be, if not now, that would be your next winter's objective. I'm going to learn how to ride rollers we've got all this technology in cycling you look at the velodromes they've got the uber fast bikes they've got the best skin suits they've got everything in there and there are still sets of rollers in the center of the velodrome because they know it's the best way for the riders to warm up and to um, from a sort of sensory perspective be feeling like they're riding the bike they can't just warm up going around the track there's events going on They very rarely use a bike that's mounted into a direct drive. The majority of times, you'll see the Olympic athletes in the centre of a velodrome on rollers. And you won't even notice they're on rollers because they're actually partly taking a skin suit off or taking a drink or doing stuff or even on the phone. And they're riding their rollers. Okay? So, learn technique. Everyone gets told about swim technique and all the different drills. And on a bike... They miss that entirely, that the best way to learn is to learn how to sit on a set of rollers and they are dirt cheap. Most people will get them off of somebody that's had them and never used them and wants to pass them on. That could be the best way if you learn how to ride a bike. The bit that people love is this grey bit and that colour is not accidental, it is grey training. It's in a grey area, it's where most people go accidentally. They go up a hill a bit too hard and the heart rate spikes. They start a steady run, but they start increasing speed because they see somebody. And what you notice is instead of being under this zone one line, they start going up into the next zone. Technically, that's the the sort of racing zone, if you like. If you do it deliberately, that's fine. Six lots of five minutes with very deliberate effort and recover, effort and recover. But there are many sessions where you can probably already think, oh yes, that bike ride. Every time we we join up, we start riding, there's a steady bit, and then somebody goes absolutely banzai off the front, and everybody chases them. Okay? You don't normally see that in pro peloton teams, where everybody's strung out. They ride side by side, and that's how they get their base training. And there's not somebody at the back going, my heart rate's not high enough, go faster. Well, that's what I've heard time and time again. People are like, "My heart rate's not high enough. This is this is rubbish training." They're sat on a bike, they're pedalling, they're chatting with the person next to them. They're getting miles in the bank, and their heart rate might be in the lower part of zone one, but that's fine. Okay, you're sat down now. You're using about 60 calories. It's about a calorie a minute. Okay. If you turn that into wattage, because most people that didn't put their hands up that have uh, not got rollers, they've probably got something that measures power or estimates it. You're using about 15 watts right now. Okay, 15, a mere 15 watts. So even if you were base training at 150 watts, you'd be increasing your metabolism tenfold. And many people say, oh, but that's a bit easy for me. Oh, my heart rate's too low, etc., etc." If you increase your metabolism tenfold, you are putting enough oxygen through your body that that's a training effect. So you don't have to finish sessions saying, oh, I felt quite easy for most of it. Then I did some efforts at the end. No, 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 no. You don't have to do any efforts at the end. Many of your sessions, you'll finish and go, I'm fine. That's fine. I'm not absolutely haggard. I don't feel like I need to destroy the fridge. I don't feel like I'm, my legs are just about to fall off or whatever. You don't feel anything like that. You go, that's fine. Because tomorrow is quite a hard session. And the hard sessions are the red ones. That's the red mist sessions, the ones that are deliberately hard. If you're doing perhaps things like Ironman, you, you don't even need to necessarily go into zone three. You've got enough zone one that's going to be tiring and challenging enough that your race speed is not dictated by how much zone 3 you do. Zone 3 becomes relevant for shorter distance athletes, but it's not really relevant for most Ironman athletes. You've got enough on your plate doing 10, 12, 14, 16, however many hours, the last thing you have to worry about is, am I doing speed work? A proper speed work or high intensity interval session would be 4 by 4 minutes at 80% power. For most people, that's 90% of your heart rate. That's hard work. If you do the base training properly, that high-intensity session will be hard work. Most people aren't doing the base training um, easy enough, so their heart rate accelerates very quickly. That's not a good sign. Your heart rate should be stubborn to get out of zone 1. When you're struggling every session to keep your heart rate from going out of zone one, I will guarantee you, you're not aerobically fit. You might have been doing this sport for 10 years, you are still not aerobically fit. The point of training is to struggle to get above 80% heart rate. Not to be constantly saying, I keep having to slow down, I can't do this, I, I can train faster than that. That's many people's ego training. And the best rule of thumb, it's difficult to do in the swim, granted, you can do it, but the best rule of thumb is can you close your mouth and just breathe through your nose? If you do that, you know you're in zone one. It's dead simple. doesn't require any monitor. doesn't require any lactate testing, any special gizmos. Right, okay, can I close my mouth and breathe through my nose? Who's tried that, by the way? Who's actually tried nose breathing? Do you like it? You don't like it. Okay. The Breathe Right strips, those strips that, that you can stick on your nose, they can sometimes be the reason why people don't or do like it. Some people have tried them and gone, they're genius, they work, they're brilliant. Your nose isn't as wide as your nostril when it gets to this point here. It's a, it's a tiny little hole. And sometimes that Breathe Right strip can make a world of difference. Particularly if people are sensitive to pollen, they're like, I can't breathe from my nose. There's more stuff going out than there is coming in. I can't breathe from my nose. It's like, okay, you don't have to do it all the time, but that's the kind of level of effort we're talking. It's not the fastest person is the one that goes out the door and goes as fast as possible. So, the flip side of training is fueling. There's probably three very simple things to think about. The first one is use carbs in some of your training sessions not absolutely every session if you're going for a 40 minute run you do not need to be consuming gels and drinks and recovery products what you need to do often is just work out what sessions are the longer ones what sessions perhaps if you're doing half iron man iron man distance or events that are beyond two hours certainly two and a half hours how do i practice fueling okay how do I practice fueling? Even Olympic distance. You've got a bottle on the bike. Some people will even have a gel on the run. It's not who can have the least goes the quickest. Sprint distance, you can get away with it. Okay? You can get away with having a very small sip on the bike. Perhaps people taking an hour 30, hour 40 for a sprint might need a bit more. But if you're taking you know, hour 10, hour 20... You're working at high intensity. What you don't want is to consume too much on the bike and then notice you've got stomach ache on the run because you're working at a high percentage. So first of all, we have to work out what are you doing in training. Everybody should be doing some endurance like bike sessions. Some of the time you fuel or some of the time like the second session that's down there, you do them fasted. You get up, you're allowed to have a coffee, you go out the door and all you have is electrolyte. And what you teach your body to do is, is firstly to be comfortable with the fact there's nothing in your stomach. You don't eat and then think, well, do I wait half an hour? Is it an hour? Do I wait an hour and a half? You just get out the door. If you're not a morning person, that could be a difficult session because getting out the door is a difficult part. But if it, if it takes, you know, a couple of coffees and then you're ready to go, fine. Coffee will not change what happens in the session. It'll probably make you feel slightly more alert, Okay. Sorry about that. Um, Who doesn't respond to coffee? Who could have a coffee at 8, 9 o'clock at night and still sleep normally? Who can do that? Who can do that? Right, you're non-responders. You have a tweak to your genes that mean you do not respond to caffeine. So you you can't use the caffeine gels and get a response. Uh, Other people would have a caffeine gel, perhaps, you know, they wrongly take one at 6 o'clock at night, and next minute they're finding that it's affecting their um, session. If you don't respond, unfortunately part of the uh, talk in a minute, it doesn't relate to you, you do not have a response to caffeine. The final one is protein. You don't have to have recovery drinks, you don't have to obsess about um, having huge amounts of protein, but your body uses protein as building blocks. So carbs and fat are the fuels, but protein is the building blocks, okay? So you need to have little and often in the day. So for most people, that's the thing to focus upon. I bet it's easy to hit your carb count and to get carbohydrates. It's getting quality protein, breakfast, ideally mid-morning, lunch, mid-afternoon, and supper. Ideally, that's what you do. If you look at an elite athlete's diet, there's always some protein in there. They're always thinking building blocks, building blocks, building blocks. If you have a low protein quality in your diet, and therefore you have a lot of carbohydrates you can't turn those carbohydrates into a training effect. Carbohydrates are only fuel. So many times people might have to have, um, they might have the odd um, protein shake or they think about much more um, protein-orientated foods, okay, and they think about it throughout the day. Not just, oh, supper, I must have some protein for supper. They'll have regular protein intakes. Doesn't take much thought, but it does take some thought. Jump past this, jump past that. Just as a, not as an aside, but many times when people get perhaps dehydrated after races, it's a very hot period leading up to your race. You've got several sessions back to back, and you notice that you are starting to get uh, maybe headaches or generally feel dehydrated. Water is not enough. People say, oh, well, I'll drink some water. There has to be electrolytes in there. And this is often after races, people have hot races, they drink lots of water afterwards but there's no electrolytes and they say they get headaches in the afternoon after a race. There was research, this only came out this week um, in the BMJ and they actually looked at it and you can tell that the water didn't work because the people that only drank water after getting dehydrated had more cramps. Which is a great indicator that your body is not in a good place. If you do that repeatedly, at some point, fingers crossed, we'll get nice hot weather like last year. If you get cramps or your energy level drops, because all you're doing is drinking plain water, unfortunately, when you exercise, you aren't just sweating plain water. You're sweating electrolytes. We've all seen seen the person with dark cycling kit or dark running kit, and it it looks like they have got tie-dye on it. It's not tie-dye. It's sweat. It's white on the fabric who who gets that who gets like white deposits on their kit you are i gotta say this right when i say you're sodium losers i mean you're losing a lot of sodium okay it's there it's on your kit other people they could do five hours of hot exercise and there's not a single white piece on their kit so if you have that you definitely need to get plenty of salt in your diet unfortunately salt is a four-letter word people think oh salt high blood pressure bad for you no You're sweating salt, and you can see it on your kit. So those people that get that, you are very susceptible, not necessarily to cramp, but certainly to electrolyte disturbances. So you should have sometimes um, these small tablets, you should have one or two in a bottle and be drinking it. And bingo, you start noticing you're recovering better. Your energy levels are better. You don't get hit by the heat as much. And this very um, sort of small-scale, short-term study just showed it. Water is not enough. And I get it from the, from the natural point of view. Oh, why put, why put electrolytes in there? Why put electrolytes? Because that's what that is. That's sweat. That is electrolytes. Okay? The little tablets aren't made of sweat. Let's make that clear. They're made of different different electrolytes. But that's what you're sweating. Everyone has a slightly different composition. We're not equally sweating sodium and chloride and potassium and magnesium at equal levels. People have differences. Okay? But water is not enough. If you want to get really complicated, when you download this, you can look at that. This came out in 2014. It's how you can plug all the different nutritional gaps in an athlete's, um, basically, performance diet. And this is, this is elite level. They are definitely doing every single bit of that. Apart from maybe the bicarbonate isn't relevant to Ironman athletes. But they will be plugging every gap with supplements. They will supplement very specifically. So... the the way to get it right is to combine the training with the nutrition, okay? So if you're doing this fasted zone one session, you can get up in the morning. It's fine for you to actually have protein. There's research and there's even products now that have realized that having protein does not change that session. You're not altering the fat use. If anything, you're protecting your body because you're taking in protein When your body is perhaps working for two hours, potentially burning 1,500 to 2,000 calories, okay? That's quite a dent on your immune system. The point of training is not to have zero calories all the time. If you're susceptible to colds a lot in the winter, sometimes you can look back and just see the person just does not take enough carbohydrate in their sessions. They're always doing two-hour rides with no fuel, 90-minute runs with no fuel, And what happens is you you batter your immune system, you get back home, you get to work, and the bugs are flying around and your body is susceptible at that point. So we know one way to keep colds at bay is to take on board carbohydrates. But a good way to teach your body to be fat efficient is to do fasted sessions. Get up, eat nothing, and off you go. You do your session. And we do this on a training camp. We say to people, right, you're going to be there at 830 You can't eat. And some people think they're going to the gallows. They're like, I've got to eat before training. It's like we're going for a one-hour run. You can do a one-hour run without eating. No, 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 I have to. It's like, no, you believe you have to, but you are perfectly capable of doing it. And then they say, wow, that's a really good session. It felt so much more comfortable not to be running with breakfast bouncing around in my stomach or not to have to get up so early before the session to eat and wait and then train. So fasted training is also often quite, uh, it's quite convenient, and it's quite useful. Uh, some people will, you know, if they cycle to work, they cycle to work, and given they've got the opportunity, so any bosses that are thinking, uh, I don't want people to eat when they get to work, it's actually quite good for them. Get to work, eat some breakfast, they've done their fasted session, they feel much better about their day, and sometimes they'll even delay breakfast. They'll delay it maybe... 40-50 minutes and eat their breakfast once they've started work but most of the time it's sort of an on-off switch faster training, no I never do it or yes I do it all the time and that's not right you should be sometimes providing carbohydrates because you get up tired or actually you're doing the third one on the list which is carbohydrate delivery sessions you practice what you're going to do on race day particularly those doing half Ironman full Ironman long-distance sportifs, ultras, you've got to practice it. You can't hope on race day it suddenly is going to come together. You've got to practice it. The ballpark, maybe 40 to 90 grams an hour. And that means, uh, with, with the athletes I deal with, they have to, they have to lay it out. And sometimes the ones that are guilty of doing it wrong, I want to see a picture of them laying it out. I want to see what they've got in their back pockets. Because if they say, oh, I'm just going to do it, yeah, I'm going to do the three and a half hour ride, I want to know they've got the fuel with them and that they practice what's going to happen on race day. I mean, you can't carry all the water you need, but water a pretty simple thing to, to find. But it's the carbohydrates. It's the, it's the, you know, the small little protein bar that they like. It's the, you know, the, the healthy snack bar that they like. You've got to be able to practice that, not just accidentally practice it, practice it in training. The one in the middle, that's your quality sessions. That's when you don't want too much, but often carbohydrate drinks make the session just go that little bit better. So you'll often see sessions where athletes are doing quality, they'll take sips of energy drink between the efforts. It might be, it's up on poolside, It's on their their, uh, bike between intervals. They grab some carbs. There's something happening at the brain level that means that if you take on board carbohydrates, your body will let you work harder. And some, some um, some might be aware of it, but there's research that shows you can put a gel in somebody's mouth, they can swill it round and spit it out, and they will still outperform if they didn't have that at all. And what happens is your brain has got many sensors in the mouth and it will sense that there's something coming and it will therefore let you work harder. Okay, it's an evolutionary thing. Okay, our body didn't just say, go and run a three-mile park run, that might be how you survive. We wouldn't have even run that far. We'd have jogged, we'd have walked. So a lot of training we do sometimes can be completely outside the parameters of what our body really wants to do. And this, take a gel and spit it out just shows the brain is very clever. It says, ah, there's food coming in, I can now, I can now work harder, okay? Um, if you have to shout to get your message across, it obviously shows it's not a very good message, is, is my point this morning, okay? This is downloadable, and you can actually um, look at this later. So, I jump past that. This is the bottom line. This is what you want to do. Complete an Ironman, do your first sprint try, ride a 200-kilometer sportive, This is the the point that it focuses upon. And the three ways to improve results are very simple, but you've got to practice them. Firstly, carbo load. The last three to five days, you just drop your training load and you keep your carbohydrates up at a moderately high level. If you're getting it right, your body weight should go up because your body stores two parts water to one part carbohydrate. So you should be gaining weight. And I like the analogy of if you're stood next to your car and you put the nozzle in, the, uh, in a fuel tank, what happens to the, to the arch? It gradually drops because it shows your car's getting heavier. Human body's the same. If we fill you up with glycogen, you get heavier. And some people panic in race week. You don't need this for sprint try. You don't need it much for, um, for Olympic distance. But certainly for half Ironman and Ironman and anything of that three-hour duration... Carbo-loading is the best way to make a difference. And it's quite simple. You're just dropping your training and keeping your carbohydrates up. Important thing, because I said it's two parts water to one part carb, you've got to drink plenty of water that week. That's all part of carbo-loading. Okay? So don't, don't just eat the carbs. Make sure you're drinking plenty. The fueling and hydration, back to what I said earlier, you try to see how you're going to fuel your event. And Science & Sport bought this product out recently called beta fuel And this, was the, um, this is the Chris Froom Superfuel. This is very high concentrated carbs. It's 82 grams in half a liter. Now, for those that are quick at maths or slow at maths, that's a 16% concentration. Look at all the textbooks. No, no, no. 6 to 8% is what you absorb. This is 16% and you absorb it. So it means that you can have a small amount of liquid on your bike... But you can increase your carbohydrate just by sipping a relatively small amount of drink. Also means you don't have to carry huge amounts in your back pocket. You only need a few sachets, even for a few hours riding. Tip it in the bottle, add your water, and away you go. For most people, if I put 82 grams in that bottle, for most of you, you'd probably be used to having that amount over two hours. You wouldn't be, oh, no, I always have 60, 70 grams an hour. Most people don't. Because I'm always, I'm always looking at my athletes, what are the simple ways to make them faster? And most of the time it's just make sure you fuel correctly and make sure you do it properly. So if you could get 82 grams in that bottle and, and absorb it, you can take that and say, well, there's my two-hour ride straight away. I don't have to think much. And I don't want it to be complicated. I've heard people say, well, at 20 minutes I'll have a gel. And at 40 minutes, I'll have half a bar, and at 60 minutes, I'll have half a litre of liquid. It's like, you're not going to keep that up. That's far too complicated. Keep it simple. Practice it. But know that each of you has got totally individual um, uh, flavours you like, products you like, but you can't accidentally get it right on the day. And the last one is the quality efforts. If you're a caffeine responder, one hour before your session is the best time to take that caffeine. Okay? If it's an interval session, 5k park run, um, perhaps it's a uh, perhaps it's a really hard swim session. One hour before, caffeine, which it could be as simple as a very strong coffee, or it could be a deliberate gel or some of the liquid products. If you aim for two to three milligrams per kilogram, that will, for most people, get you very much focused. And improve that session. Because the point of that session is that you do good quality work. Zone 1 training, you shouldn't really need to rely on caffeine all the time. That often shows that I've got a tired athlete. If they can't come off coffee when they're doing zone 1 training, it shows they've got too used to being tired, but using coffee to lift them up. The game changers. These are five things you can do to make a difference but for most people we've got to go way 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 back to the early bit get your base training right because there's nothing that's about to come up here that will make as much difference as making sure you do your base training at the correct level oh there we go hold on let's go back one there we go the first one is your body mass people run quicker lo and behold we're at the lower end of their body weight okay if they're nearer to their better body weight funny thing they seem to be running well nothing to do with how many miles they're running you just move over the floor a lot quicker when you're lighter okay that doesn't always translate in cycling because you've got gears and you've got you've got uh, you've got the potential to just about get away with small weight increases but still be riding well but on the run it comes down to body mass so the best time to be at your lower weight is when you get nearer to your events. It'll make the other two better, swim and bike, but it'll make the biggest difference on the run. And it's quite easy. You just slightly reduce the amount of calories you're taking in. Get rid of treats for a little while. Only a few, we all want some treats, but you know, people's weight when they see the scale often does tell them the truth. It's whether they want to do anything about it. The next four, they're very, very specific. And to be honest, unless you're doing everything Already, really well with your training to throw in uh, nitrates, i.e., load up for the last seven days before an event. It's the icing on the cake, but you've got a lot of cake building before that's going to be really, really relevant. They are all very highly supported with research data, but they're not a quick fix. And I haven't even put the amount, the days, the type of person that responds to it. They're just things that we know when we go to our diagram, they appear there. They're on there somewhere, they fill in a gap, but to be honest, most people, it's the training that makes the biggest difference. One more thing. Blood profiling. This has been going on for decades. This is where you take an athlete's finger prick blood profile, you put it in a sample, you throw it in the post, and it comes back. This person started in the red. Their vitamin D was way, way, way below what it should be. Because they were off the scale, it made sense for that person to supplement. Because there was evidence showing it. Then they kept it going, and lo and behold, they're now on the upper end of normal. Somewhere halfway between those two green dots is the level that we know is the critical point. It's uh, 90 units. If you stay below that number there is a good chance your increase of uh, stress fractures there's a mood response that's associated with low vitamin d and there's also just a general energy level that's associated with low vitamin d and the immune system can get battered if you take your vitamin d low enough So this person cannot believe the difference in how they feel. But I couldn't look at them and look at them and go, I reckon your vitamin D is down. Oh, I'll just have a look at your fingernails or whatever other rubbish gets thrown around. No, they had a blood sample. The data showed that they needed to do something about it. And they supplemented. Bingo. He's feeling better. And as a coach, I know that from I can look inside the athlete and work out where they are. Even at that low D level, the doctor's not going to be doing anything significant. He seems healthy. He's been doing 12 hours training. Pfft, no problems. Don't, don't waste our time. Okay? The next one, which is more of an issue, particularly with athletes doing, prob- well, they could get this on eight hours training a week, but lots of people do an Ironman training. The, the dots don't look like they've gone up much. This person's still not out, uh, out of the woods, so to speak but it's still gone up 20%. They feel so much better. They've gone from very low to not quite as low, but it just showed how overtrained this athlete was when they said, I need your help. They were down at, I think off the top of my head, it was six or seven units of testosterone. The average often found in this age group is more like 16 or 17. So they are not recovering. They felt awful. Um, And since then they've made massive improvements. And I really needed that data for the person to change their attitude towards training. And one day, halfway through a phone conversation, um, and I get goosebumps about it now, this particular client went, I need to say something to you um, from my wife. What what, what do you mean? Well, my wife just wants to say something to you. I said, well, what does she want to say? She just wants to say, thank you very much for getting my husband back. And I was just like gulp oh my lord you know i'm trying to improve your performance i'm trying to make you a healthier person but the fact you've had that much of a psychological change in who you are yes you must have been toast you must have been very annoying to be around you must have been very um, unenergetic unenergetic and this is only a small increase but to take somebody from eight i think we're up to about 11 now it's certainly gone up significantly and i couldn't see that but now it's possible to measure that And the people that do this are called fourth edge. And what they notice is, even within, I've probably got 20, 25 athletes that do it on a regular basis. And 85% of the metrics they're measuring are fine. Unfortunately, 15% of those metrics are not fine sometimes they're too high they're over supplementing perhaps uh, iron they're just having way too much iron and they're up at the red zone as you're looking at it on the far right and it's like whoa 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 if, if you're on iron get off it it's way too high conversely we can have it in the other direction the hemoglobin the testosterone something is way too low and as a coach It's brilliant because it means that I can can look inside and see what's going on. If you're self-coaching, it's an insurance policy to make sure all this training that you're doing isn't making some significant health issues. Because they they come about, if I've got 15% of metrics that are not right and they're spread across everybody, everybody finds something, then even though you wouldn't even often get get a look in at the doctors, they'd be like, no, 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 your, your bloods are fine. And often they won't even give them to you. This allows you to see them specifically and then to get expert help on what to do. And it's more common than not, particularly with athletes that get really motivated and get into this, that they start noticing that problems happen. And then we have to go right the way back to basics. So the takeaways... And as I said before, you can go to uh, Twitter, go to Facebook and look up uh, Coach Joe Beer and you can download all of this. It's a simple PDF. So training less than 80% of your maximum heart rate. This has to be your habit. If you're used to going out and pushing it and puffing and panting all the sessions, (sighs) sorry, you're doing it wrong. And most people are doing it wrong. The biggest thing that I can help people is to slow them down. They're like that's weird, you slowed me down two months later, I'm quicker than I've ever been well, why does that work? you just cannot push the body there's no, it's not the best athletes just push harder if we go way back to that I'll go back for people that missed it go way back to the graph of the most successful endurance female cross country skier and most of her training the green bit most of her training was done in zone 1 it was easy it was very very easy And so it's not about who's got the most effort, it's about who's good at going out the door, relaxing, being able to concentrate on good technique in the pool, um, running really relaxed and not pushing and puffing and panting all the time. And if you get to a hill and your heart rate starts going up, well, you have to slow down. Or don't go near hills. Just don't go near them. Run on a treadmill. Do something that makes you feel like you're constantly running. But everyone's got a hill somewhere that will make them go out of zone. And they have to slow down. i just jump forwards now. Also, you know, hard work, time trials, races, they've got to be planned. You don't accidentally start finding yourself doing a, a hard session. If it's not meant to be a hard session that day, it's not meant to be a hard session. Don't say, oh, I started to feel good in the, in the warm-up. I felt really good, and do you know what? I'm just going to do a hard session. No, that's wrong. If it's not planned, don't do it as was shown earlier, nutrition, your timing and and the type of nutrition makes a big impact. We've all got foods we love, foods we like to eat, foods that just make us feel good, that's fine but the timing of what you do is probably the missed part of your training diary. Just timing things right and saying, wow, I ate 90 minutes before that run and I felt much better. I've always been used to doing it literally about 50 minutes before and I always get stomach ache and it seems the simplest of things but most people miss that. Also, training and nutrition work together. They're not, they're not, oh, sorry, we got a green screen. Oh, no, we haven't. There we go. They work together. They're not just diametrically opposed. There was a saying in, uh, in running years ago, you know, eating is cheating. As if somehow eating made you worse um, and it was cheating. Eating is cheating. Um, and psychologically that did quite a lot of people a lot of damage because they thought they could not touch much food, and there's you know, plenty of biographies and plenty of uh, horror stories about it. No, eating is the fun part of what you're doing. I can't spot any professionals. If you are there, sorry, I can't uh, recognize you, but most people are doing this as your playtime. So what's the point in going through purgatory? You're not going to necessarily change your world that much, so it's not worth totally you know, saying I'm never going to you know, eat chocolate until I break 10 hours in an Ironman or I'm not going you know, to have any wine until I can complete you know, at least 15 hours training on 6 consecutive weeks or so whatever the bizarre motivational things that people set themselves just go easy on yourself there's one thing that people do is they overexert and think they're going to make a difference um, there's a secret, if you want to be great, I will tell you the secret okay choose your parents very well Okay, That's the secret. There's no, there's no secret that when you look at elite athletes, their parents may not have got the opportunity to do sport, but when they did, you'll find they were quite good at it. Okay. You need to practice every aspect of your race day. And finally, blood profiling is, I think it's vital for many people. It might even be that you get, a, um, you get perhaps a test done at work and you can look into the metrics a bit more and you don't just get fobbed off with, oh yeah, everything's fine. Because as an endurance athlete, what is fine, in doctor's terminology, is not necessarily fine from the point of view of endurance athlete. Questions? Have we finished yet? I've got five minutes. So can we have the mic? And then if you've got a question, please. Debbie will hand you the mic. First question. You've got to have a question. I haven't, I haven't nailed it there. There's one here. There we go. Okay. Oh, yeah. Is it on? Yes. You know what, on um, one of the uh, clips you put up, it was about, you know, fasted training first thing in the morning. It said, have your breakfast about 45 minutes after you no, get back. No, 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 let's go back. No, it didn't say no fasted training. Um, you're on about, um, okay, yeah, I know where you are. Was it that one? I'm trying no, to find the 45 I think it was before minutes. that. It said that if you do a fasted session, yeah, yeah. don't eat for about 45 minutes. Yeah. Normally, that, I'm sure we've read in the past, particularly in 220, there's like a carbohydrate window. You've got to get carbs in within half an hour, I thought they used to no. say. Okay, there is a carbohydrate window where you can store more glycogen, okay? Um, not many people have looked into this area of, of fat burning properly. What happens when you're fasted is as you're, as you're training, your body basically mobilizes fat from various places. I could point at various places, often it's around here. It mobilizes it into your bloodstream, and part of your fuel is coming from fat. When you fat burn at fasted exercise, you're still using considerable carbohydrate, okay? When people fat burn, it's not exclusive. It's not like, oh, I'm using all fat, I'm not using anything else. You'd be lucky to hit 50% of calories, to be fair. So... Your body mobilizes this fat into the bloodstream and if you measure it you can see the amount of grams per minute that you're using but also the amount in the blood is going up. When you stop, what you want your body to do is to actually take those circulating fats and put them back somewhere. And What people don't realize is the best place for your body to put them back into is your muscles. Okay? You've got little droplets of fat that appear in between muscle fibers the better athletes have more fat droplets stored around their fibres because that's what they know okay? if you whack a recovery drink down, firstly you probably don't need it you have not got something coming up in the next four hours and that's the critical reason why you would need a recovery drink if you have one and somebody else did the same session and they didn't have one if we looked at you twenty four hours later we would not be able to tell which one of you had had that drink I know it's a nice treat and we like the chocolate one or the strawberry or the banana but you do not need it. I only use recovery drinks when I literally have to crawl through the front door. Okay? You are so tired you think can I get to the uh, shower? Is it going to be possible? Or is that going to break me? And you have something very quick to think that's a quick bit of energy to just bring me to a slightly more alert level. You have a shower you get trained you prepare food and then you eat the real food maybe 45 minutes an hour later. But all the recovery drink is doing is actually bridging that gap, okay? So if you, if you leave at 45 minutes and don't have this recovery drink, you are storing back what is called IMTGs, intermuscular triglycerides. It's the fat that sits within the muscle cells. You then get better at fat burning, okay? And you've got to look at the research. Very hard to see that. This wasn't even being measured more than about six, seven years ago. They couldn't measure it accurately in the muscle. So they've actually found that... You see this often, pro-cyclists, pro-runners will do long sessions just on coffee and eat nothing for a while afterwards. They know they're going to store not just glycogen back in your legs, okay, but actually store fat droplets. And even if you stopped and didn't have that recovery drink, your body's amazing. It will take the circulating lactate, which if you're doing it steady is probably between one and two millimoles. It will take that lactate and it will store it back in your muscles as glycogen. Not much of it, but it will already be storing. And you haven't touched a recovery drink, and it's doing it for you. So I wouldn't rush to recovery drinks. I think they are overused by some athletes as a treat. And you've really got to be hanging. I mean, absolutely hanging, thinking, I cannot eat any food, but I really need something right now to just bridge a gap. And if you know that's a likelihood, because as I said earlier, plan your hard sessions, that drink should be sitting in the fridge. So you can drink a cold recovery drink, it's not a massive one, it doesn't have to be 600 calories of gloop. it can be relatively small, then you'll get in the shower, then you'll get changed, then you'll, then you'll eat a lot more controlled than if you fall in the door and just whack everything down as fast as possible. Most people, that, that 45 minutes, they just get used to it, they're like, yeah, it's fine now, I have no issues. It's people that have never done it, or think straight after every session they can start plugging down lots of uh, carbohydrate recovery drinks that um, it's not looking at the research, and the research came out in 1992, and uh, it showed you can store glycogen faster, but it's only that first four hours that is significant. And unless you really need that first four hours to be absolutely 100% right, it's actually a treat that you don't need. Okay? I think I may have to finish up now. Is that correct? Just got checked? Yeah? Okay. Yeah. So what we we'll do, as there is another speaker, as per yesterday, if you want to go over that direction, i will quite happily stand there and just take your questions. Thank you very much. As I said, this will be available, or actually is available, um, on Facebook at Coach Joe Beer. And um, thank you very much for your time. Cheers. Thank you.